Good morning. Those are some slides from a couple of our mission trips last summer to Guatemala. Uh, we invite you to come join us next Saturday night at 6.30 after our Saturday evening service, and uh, we're going to have some updates from several other trips as well. I'd like you to join me in your Bible this morning in Luke chapter 9. What's the talk of the town right now? Ben Affleck. People say, I I, I saw him. I, I heard he's over there. I think he's driving this kind of car. I think he's staying there. Not even sure I would recognize Ben Affleck if I saw him. I heard he looks like Joey Babbage. (laughs) Only not as good looking. Joey told me that. (laughs) The rumor in the neighborhood is that he's staying in the house behind us. And uh, we normally don't sit in the dining room, but lately I've noticed my wife sipping coffee in the dining room because the windows (laughs) face that house. She's stalking Ben. Someone in our small group made this observation. If Ben Affleck came up to one of us and said, follow me, I bet we'd drop everything and follow him. That's comparable to the commotion Jesus caused. As Jesus traveled around, he was the talk of the town. When he was at Peter's house in Capernaum, Mark 1.33 says, the whole city gathered at the door. The reason he fed the multitudes is because they followed him out to a remote location where there was no food. And so he had to feed them. And Matthew 14 says, when he fed them, there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So there were 5,000 families In our day, we think of a family as maybe four. That would be 20,000 people. Back then, they had larger families. So it was probably 30, 35, 40,000 people gathered around Jesus. Luke chapter 5 says the crowds were pressing in on him so much that he had to get in a boat and go out into the lake to get some separation in order to teach them. The friends of the paralytic had to tear a hole through the roof of the house just to get to him. Zacchaeus had to climb a tree just to see Jesus. He was the first century paparazzi. Jesus was the talk of the town. Let me ask you this. If Jesus came up to you and said, follow me, would you drop everything? And follow him. Well, he has. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And there were some interesting ideas. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Now, all of those guys were dead. So they were saying, We believe, the people believe you're somebody who was important in the past, who has now risen from the dead. I think I would walk along across town to see that guy. 
And having heard what everybody else thought, Jesus then asked them in verse 20, who do you say that I am? And Peter came up with this great statement, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus immediately says in verse 21, don't tell anybody. Now that's a strange strategy for evangelism. They finally understand he's Messiah and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. You know why? Because they had the wrong idea about Messiah. They thought Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome by power and set up his kingdom and go to the throne. And Jesus has to explain to them what kind of Messiah he is. And he does that in verse 22. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. I'm not the kind of Messiah who's going to be elevated to the throne. I'm the kind of Messiah who is going to descend to the cross. I'm not going immediately to glory. I'm first going to suffer and be rejected and die on the cross. And then I'm going to glory. I'm going on a different path than you expected the Messiah to go on. And then he gives an invitation to follow this kind of Messiah. And that's in verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that's an open invitation. It's to all. He says, anyone who wishes What I love about Jesus is he never tells you half the truth. He's always going to tell you the cost up front. And here we find out that following Jesus is not easy. I'm sure some in the first century were satisfied to say, I saw Jesus. Some were satisfied to say, I got a picture of him on my iPhone. Jesus touched me. Jesus healed me. But you see, Jesus is not satisfied with that. Because He didn't come to be the talk of the town. He didn't come just to feed the hungry. He didn't come just to heal the sick. He came to suffer and to die the death that you deserve. He didn't come to be applauded. He came to be abandoned and rejected and abused and killed. He didn't come to sit on a throne. He came to hang on a cross. He didn't come to be famous. He came to be followed. And so Jesus says, follow me. But before you do, here's the cost. You have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Do it daily. And follow me. Denial and death daily. 
Lay down all of your will. Lay down all of your life. Lay down all of your time. What's this verse tell us? Jesus doesn't follow you on your terms. Jesus calls you to follow Him on His terms. He calls you to follow Him. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He calls you to make Him the first and the foremost priority of your life. Jesus doesn't tag along to become an addendum to your life. Jesus doesn't tag along to become an accessory to your life. He calls you to say with Paul in Colossians 3, 4, Christ is our life. We're calling this series Make. James had us look at the mandate, which is Jesus' words, go and make disciples. Then he had us look at the meaning, what it means to be a disciple. Last week we looked at the model, life on life. Jesus taught the crowds, but he focused specifically on 12 and really invested in three. Now we're going to talk about the marks of a disciple. What characterizes a disciple? And we're going to spend several weeks on this because we want to develop biographies on each one of the original disciples. See what they were like before Christ and the characteristics in their lives because they had been with Jesus. But this morning, I want to single out what I consider to be the primary mark of every disciple. The fundamental mark of every disciple. The common mark of every disciple. And it is this. A surrendered will. A surrendered will. Jesus spelled that out in verse 23. The first step in following Him is denying you. The first step in following Him is picking up your cross. And what do you do on a cross? You die. So the first step is denying you. The first step is dying to you. When I was a young Christian, I had the idea that there were two categories of Christians. There were Christians and disciples. So I had the idea there were two kinds of verses. There were salvation verses and discipleship verses. Salvation verse, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation verse. Luke 9.23. Discipleship verse. So when I came to a tough verse, something tough that Jesus said, I would just throw it in the disciple bin. I don't have to deal with that. It really helped my conscience. 
Because I could be a Christian and have no life change, no fruit, no real brokenness, no repentance, no denying self, no pursuing Christ. And it was okay. Because I was a Christian, I had not opted to be a disciple. Disciples were martyrs. Disciples were missionaries. Disciples were superheroes. But as James pointed out a couple weeks ago, while I may have been comfortable with that distinction, it's not biblical. You don't become a Christian and then later become a disciple. In fact, if you look in the book of Acts, you'll find out that it's just the opposite. They became disciples and then they were later called Christians. See, discipleship is not optional. It's not graduate school. Acts 11.26 says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You know what they were called before that? Disciples. Every time. Acts 6, Acts 6.1 says the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples. Verse 7, the word kept spreading and the number of the disciples kept increasing. So a Christian and a disciple are just two names for the same person. You cannot separate them. There is no discipleship bin. In fact, Jesus gives this same invitation a few chapters later in, in Luke chapter 14. And I want you to notice what he says there. Chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus says it even stronger. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So that's a tough verse. Jesus must be talking to just the apostles. No. If you look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25, here's who he's talking to. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Jesus says this to the huge crowds. And he gives it as an invitation. And he uses the word whoever. Same word as John 3.16. Whoever wants to follow me has to pick up his cross. Or he can't be my disciple. In Luke chapter 9, he uses the word anyone. Anyone who wishes. So Luke 9.23 is just as much a gospel verse as John 3.16. And I'm going to explain this further next week, so come back. But let me make it as clear as I can this morning. If you do not have a surrendered will to Jesus Christ, you're not saved. If you can't look in your heart of hearts and see that your will is surrendered to Jesus, you're not saved. You may be hanging around Jesus like people are hanging around Ben Affleck 
But if you're still satisfied with Jesus spottings, a little Jesus experience once in a while, you're not following him. Because the first step in following him is denying you. It's saying no to you. It's saying to Jesus what he said for you in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Now this morning I want to focus on the end of chapter 9 where Jesus encounters three would-be disciples. Would-be disciples who didn't really understand what it meant to deny themselves. And I want to learn three lessons from them. Number one, we learn that to follow Jesus, you have to surrender your comforts. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, what road? Back in verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. He's going down the road with the shadow of the cross coming across him. He's heading right for the cross. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus is heading for the cross and this man speaks up and he says, I will. That's great determination. I will follow you wherever you go. That's a blank check for Jesus. You name it, Jesus, I'll do it. We would probably baptize this guy on the spot. We'd make him a deacon. I would give my daughter's hand to this guy. Sounds great. Jesus is probably going to say, come along, you're just the kind of guy I'm looking for. But instead, Jesus tells him the rest of the story. In verse 58, and Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now why did Jesus respond that way? Because there were a lot of people who were following Jesus for the goodies. I mean, Jesus could heal the sick. So if you were lame, he could make you walk. If you were blind, he could make you see. Even if you were dead, he raised dead people. This is better than Obamacare. This is Jesus' care. Full coverage, no premiums. Sweet deal to follow Jesus. He took a few fish and a few loaves of bread and turned them into an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. Why not follow Jesus? So this guy speaks up and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. You can count on me. Uh, Can I get a menu? And Jesus says, if you think you're going to follow me into the comforts of life, think again. 
Because when it comes to comforts, I'm worse off than the animal kingdom. Foxes have homes. Birds have homes. I don't have a home. I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus didn't even have the basic comforts of life. In Nazareth, he lived in his mother's home. When he moved out, he went to Capernaum, and we're told he lived in Peter's home. In Bethany, he stayed in the home of Mary and Martha. And there's a telling verse in John 7.53 where we read this. It says, And everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and the next morning he came into the temple. Everyone went to their home, but Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. What's that? A hill with olive trees. Everyone went to their home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he didn't have a home. He had nowhere to lay his head. If you go back through this gospel, we read in Luke chapter 4 that he came to Nazareth and they cast him out of the city. In Luke chapter 8, he went across to the country of the Gerizines and they asked him to leave. He came to Samaria here in Luke 9.53 and they wouldn't receive him. When he gets to Jerusalem, they're going to cry, crucify him. And on the cross, he's going to say these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had nowhere to lay his head except the cross of rejection. Cities slammed the door on him. Countries slammed the door on him. The earth slammed the door on him. You and I slammed the door on him. Even heaven slammed the door on him. So when you step up and say, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus wants to know. Are you willing to follow me when you don't know where you're going to lay your head? Are you willing to follow me when there are no promises about personal comfort? Are you willing to follow me when my priority for you is not a pillow? Now, that's not to say if you follow Jesus, you're going to be homeless. That's not to say if you follow Jesus, you're going to lose all your comforts. But it is to say that you need to be willing to. That's a surrendered will. And God, if God has blessed you with possessions, use them for the glory of God. And hold on to them loosely. See, the mark of a disciple is not me adding Jesus to my way of life. It's me renouncing my way of life for his, no matter what that costs me. Well, there's a second would-be disciple who teaches us that to follow Jesus, you have to surrender your plans. We see him in verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. 
Now that word first is a priority word. This guy is saying, I'd like to follow you, but I've got another priority. First let me go and bury my father. Now that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? In a way of thinking today, you'd say, well, I've probably got, he's got, probably got to plan the funeral about three days out. You know, take care of all the arrangements. They're going to have a visitation from four to nine. And then they're going to have the funeral, and he's going to comfort the family, and then he's going to come back and follow Jesus. The problem with that logic is that the Jews didn't practice embalming. So when someone died they put some perfume on him, a few spices, and put him in the grave. Normally, when someone died, they buried him the same day. So if this fellow's father had died, I can't imagine that he's out at the road watching Jesus go by so he can be told by Jesus, follow me. He would have to be back comforting his family, mourning for his father, and putting him in the grave. So the problem I have with this man's request is that his father isn't dead. When he says, let me go bury my father, what he's really saying is, let me go home and work for my father, which is the tradition of that day. James and John were fishermen with their father. Jesus was a carpenter because his father was. Let me go home, work with my father, And when he eventually dies, I'll be free from my father, and then I will come and follow you. And what will he also have when his father dies? An inheritance. See, I think this second fellow heard the first fellow. The first fellow said, I will follow you, and Jesus said, I have nowhere to lay my head. The second guy doesn't volunteer. He's drafted. Jesus says, follow me. So he's got to come up with an excuse. So he says, first let me bury my father, and then I'll have my inheritance. And then when you have nowhere to lay your head, I'll have the money to get a room at the Drury Inn. This man is not saying, I have an urgent obligation. My father just died. He's saying, I have some personal plans. And I don't want to give those up. So let me fulfill my plans first. And then I'll come follow you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 60. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury the dead. What's that mean? I think what Jesus is saying is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the people who don't know God worry about death and inheritances. You've got something more important to do with your life than to wait around for people to die. I want you to go out and tell people how to live. I want you to tell people how to come out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of decay into life. I don't want you to wait around for someone to die. I've got a kingdom job for you to do. And I want you to change your plans. 
Let me ask you a personal question this morning. What are you waiting for before you get serious about following Jesus? Lord, as soon as I get married, I'll follow you. As soon as I have kids, I'll follow you. As soon as I get my kids raised, I'll follow you. As soon as I get out of school and get that job I've always wanted, then I'll follow you. As soon as I retire, then I'll follow you. If you're saying that, Jesus would say the same thing he said to this man. And that is, that's the way spiritually dead people talk. Spiritually alive people don't talk that way. Because spiritually alive people understand that Jesus takes priority over all their plans. The call to follow Jesus is the most important call you will ever get. It is the most serious decision you will ever make. And it's a decision to follow Jesus today, not tomorrow. It's a decision to follow Jesus in everything, not some things. God doesn't want you after you're older. He doesn't want you after you have a family. He doesn't want you after your plans. He doesn't want you after anything. He wants you now. The fundamental mark, the universal mark of a disciple is a surrendered will. So if you are a disciple, you will not find yourself saying to Jesus, wait. Well, there's a third would-be disciple who shows us that to follow Jesus, you have to surrender your personal relationships. We read about him in verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Now, this fellow is a volunteer. And it's impressive that he calls Jesus Lord, Master, He's saying, you're in charge. This guy's got his theology right. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go home and pack my suitcase and say goodbye to my family. That sounds reasonable. But I think Jesus knows what will happen when this fellow gets home. When he gets home and starts explaining this to his family, you know what's going to happen? They're going to try to talk him out of it. They're going to say, you're going where? With who? For how long? Don't you care about us? Don't you love us? You see, I think when this fellow says, I want to go home and say goodbye, what he's really saying is, I want a second opinion. I want to go home and see what my family thinks about me following Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Last verse in the chapter. But Jesus said to him, 
No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who grabs the plow to cut a straight furrow across the field and looks back is fit for the farm. Why? Because he's going to plow crooked and he's never going to get to the other side. I've only plowed a field once and that's when a member of our congregation broke his arm. And so he gave me a quick lesson in plowing and turned me loose. But I still remember the secret to cutting a straight plow across the field, straight furrow across the field, and that is you had to focus on something on the other side. Maybe a tree. And keep looking at it so that when you got to the other side, you would see that you had cut straight across the field. You can't plow and look around. You can't plow and enjoy the scenery. And you certainly can't plow and look back because you'll plow in circles. God called Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. He said, I want you to plow a straight furrow to Canaan. I'll give you a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All you got to do is follow. They started out and began to look back. Started looking back at Egypt, and the more they looked back at Egypt, the more Egypt started looking better to them than the promised land. They thought about the fish and the onions and the leeks and the garlic, and they looked back and ended up plowing in circles for 40 years. Some of you have put your hand to the plow to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and you're looking back. And you're thinking about the friends you left behind. You're thinking about the parties. You're thinking about all the excitement back there. And you're going to look up at the end of your life and realize you never plowed the furrow across the field. Some of you are going to wake up when you're my age and wonder what you did with your life because you've plowed in circles. God told Lot and his wife and his children to leave, cut a straight furrow out of Sodom, and don't look back. They started out of Sodom, and they heard the fire and the brimstone coming, back, coming down, and his wife started thinking about all her friends back there started thinking about Nordstrom's and Dillard's and Macy's. Started thinking about her designer clothes, her furniture, her house, everything she left back behind, and she looked back. And the Bible says she became a pillar of salt. She never finished the course. Jesus says, follow me, and don't look back. Don't let your friends turn you around. Don't let your family turn you around. Don't let your co-workers turn you around. They don't know where Jesus is taking you. Here are three would-be followers of Jesus who tried to bypass the fundamental mark of a disciple, a surrendered will. The first wouldn't surrender his comforts. The second wouldn't surrender his plans. And the third wouldn't surrender his relationships.
these three men came to Jesus and apparently they disappeared because we don't read about them again. William MacDonald described them this way. They left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. They spent the rest of their lives hugging the secondary because that's what you hug when you don't follow Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend my life hugging the subordinate. I want to follow him. And to follow him, you've got to do it on his terms. Denying yourself. Denying yourself of comforts, denying yourself of plans, denying yourself of relationships. One of my favorite all-time quotes is from a man named Jim Elliott who gave up his own comforts and his own plans and his own relationships to follow Jesus. He followed him to Ecuador as a missionary. And there he was killed by the Alka Indians that he was trying to reach for Christ. But before he left, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Personal comforts, personal plans, personal relationships. To gain what he cannot lose. Eternal comfort. Eternal plans. Eternal relationships. We're spending this semester talking about making disciples. I want to challenge you this morning that you can't make disciples until you become a disciple yourself. So I want to ask you this morning to examine your heart of hearts and see if you can say that you have the first mark of a disciple, a surrendered will to Jesus. And if you don't see that in you, then I invite you along with Jesus to surrender to him this morning.